How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. Today's episode of the Lockdown Knicks podcast is brought to you by SeatGeek. Download the SeatGeek mobile app for the easiest way to buy tickets to concerts or sporting events. Use the promo code LONIX to get a $20 rebate on your first SeatGeek purchase. That's LONIX for a $20 rebate on your first SeatGeek purchase. You are Locked On Knicks, your daily podcast on the New York Knicks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Yeah. Uh, my city and why? Yeah, let me take my time. I'm on my grind. Gotta make sure that we shine. What's yours is mine, and what's mine is yours. HR to the death, and first always my team for sure. The ball can't fall off. Got a family support. Gotta make sure we succeed and reach our dream that lived through me. I'm about to take off. Yeah, and it's no days off. Hello, and welcome to the Locked On Knicks podcast. This is episode 24. I am your host, Jared Dubin. I want to say thank you again to Sean Scott for the intro music and his manager, LeVar, for the hookup. The song is called Good Times. It's produced by Pav Bundy. You can follow Sean Scott on both Twitter and Instagram at SeanScottHR, and you can find his music on SoundCloud. Uh, The Lockdown Knicks podcast and the Lockdown Podcast Network are now in partnership with FanRag Sports. You can check out todaysfastbreak.com for their content, and you can find a link to the podcast on their Knicks page, as well as the podcast archive on the bottom of any Knicks-related article. And if today's fast break sounds familiar to you, it's probably because that's where you've been reading Charlie Rosen's Phil Jackson Chronicles throughout this offseason. Be sure also to check out Lockdown NBA, hosted by David Locke, the radio voice of the Utah Jazz. He's got good guests on the show every week. Be on the lookout for Locked On Fantasy Basketball, hosted by Josh Lloyd for all your fantasy basketball needs. I will be on that show later this week to talk about the Knicks and fantasy basketball stuff. And if you like the NFL, the Locked On Podcast Network has expanded to include NFL podcasts. Locked On Giants is hosted by Art Stapleton of The Record, and Locked On Jets is hosted by John Butchko of Gang Green Nation. Both shows are off to great starts so far, and they will bring you great Giants and Jets content throughout the NFL season. If you like what I'm doing with Locked On Knicks and you are a Giants or Jets fan, I can guarantee that you will like what they're doing with those shows as well. And with that, let's get to today's guest. Uh, Once again, the guy I think is the single most essential daily read for any Knicks fan, my friend Chris Herring of the Wall Street Journal. Chris, what's up, man? Not much. I appreciate that. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, I, I see you've been taking a, a short break, uh, and you posted only one story over the last couple weeks, and I have not been able to get my fix of your stuff, man. <laughs> yeah, um, just taking time off. You deserve it. And, uh, and um, headed headed out of the country for, for a couple weeks um, pretty soon here, so I figure just kind of whittle down how much I'm, I'm out there tweeting. I, mean, I don't know. Some of the stuff, you guys know how I would feel about it anyway. I've seen all the Kaepernick stuff lately, and um, and it's it, it takes so much energy sometimes to argue and debate and tweet these things out, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's so clear where I stand on so many of these 
human rights and social rights issues in the first place that it's kind of like not wasted breath because I guess it's just typing, but it's just to do it 140 characters at a time. It's been kind of nice to just detach from some of that for about a week, a week and a half. So. Yeah, and look, there's for some people, myself included, it takes more energy to not weigh in on it because it's so frustrating than it does to actually weigh in on it, even if the, the, the stance I have uh, is, is so obvious, if you've met me or read me or listened to me or tweeted with me. Um, but I mean, we'll get to that in a minute cause that's, you know, very much connected to what we're going to talk about, uh, later on. But quickly before we do that, I wanted to talk about a story you wrote during the Olympics, um, about Carmelo shooting threes better after he comes back, uh, from the Olympics. And, and that's something that, you know, I think the, it's, it's widely known that Carmelo has been a better player and his teams have been better after the last two Olympic Games, but I don't think anybody had really zeroed in on the three-point shooting yet. Sure. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I looked in the... I initially kind of looked into... I was going to look into why he plays so much better at the Olympics, which I, I feel like as I started researching that, one, it wasn't that compelling to me because I think it's pretty obvious that he is a better player because, you know, he's, he's asked to do less, and it's kind of one of those things where you kind of get diminishing returns from him sometimes when he's asked to do so much, and he's a number one option in the NBA where defenders are better and there are more players his size that can guard him, um, and he's relied upon so much. And so, and, and I, I want to say uh, Coach Nick from B-Ball Breakdown did, like, a lengthy video yep. as I was kind of researching some of that, but I kind of feel like a lot of those rationales were already out there and the average fan already kind of had an idea as to why he plays so much better at the Olympics. The other thing to add here is that he also didn't absolutely dominate the Olympics this year. He had the one crazy, crazy game, I guess, I think maybe Australia where he kind of saved them. Yep, 31 points. 31 or something like that. But aside from that, when you look at his his just straight up field goal percentages and how much he was averaging per game, I mean, it was pretty clear he wasn't the best or probably even the second best player on this team, I think. Uh, Durant, Paul George probably could make those claims better than he could, but but either way, I mean, I, I think people generally know why he, he plays so well at the Olympics and why he's so dominant a lot of the time. Um, so I wanted to move away from that. I kind of just wanted to zero in on one or two things he does really well, and then translates to the NBA game uh, when he comes back. And and I think when you look at what he's done, at least over the first couple months once he's back in the league, he's generally played really, really well, and been really, really good as a shooter, specifically, and, um, you know, I think it's played a pretty big role in why his teams have gotten out to really, really good starts whenever he comes back from the Olympics, and so there was one year in there where his, his three-point numbers were pretty average when he came back, but the other two, um, he shot really, really well from three-point range, and, um, you know, what exactly that speaks to, I mean, I kind of spitballed that maybe it's just him being in better shape and being able to get better looks in transition as a result of it because he's running up and down the floor a little bit harder. Um, you know, it might just be that it's, it's confidence for him where, you know, the Olympic three-point line for FIBA is a lot shorter, and so maybe it's just kind of that uh, he sees the basket as being really big when he first gets back, and then, he's, you know, he's been training harder and more frequently as a result of, you know, the summer games, but it, it's hard to tell. But either way, you know, I think there might be something to it. We'll obviously get a chance to see whether that trend continues. I guess it'll be the last time we get a chance to see if the trend is, is accurate because, you know, he said he's not going to play 
in the Olympics four years from now. But um, but either way, I mean, it was kind of fun to look into. Who knows if it's actually the, the key reason why he's better when he comes back. But, you know, it's just a kind of a hunch, and it's something that I think could be the case. Uh, whatever the reason behind it, you know, I'm sure obviously people or people that are listening to this are hoping that that it continues this season. Um, but before we talk one more Olympics-related thing, though, I, I do have to take a quick minute to recognize our sponsor. Uh, today's Locked On Knicks podcast is brought to you by SeatGeek, the best ticket purchasing service there is. Download the SeatGeek mobile app for the easiest way to buy tickets to concerts or sporting events. If you use the promo code LONIX, you get a $20 rebate on your first SeatGeek purchase. The experience is so easy. The ticket is delivered in-app, so you don't have to print anything out. Just walk to the gate at your concert or game and show the ticket taker the barcode on your SeatGeek app, then walk into the venue. That's literally all you need to do. It's like the easiest thing of all time. And uh, and not only that, but unlike with other ticket-buying marketplaces, SeatGeek lets you know which ticket options are the best deals. They rate every ticket with a deal score from 1 to 100 to let you know what kind of bang for your buck that you get with the tickets you're purchasing. You can sign up for price alerts for certain events as well. So let's say you're listening to this podcast and you're a New York Jets fan and you want to go to the Jets-Bengals season opener uh, on September 11th, you can sign up for price alerts and and SeatGeek will let you know what the pricing is for the game. Prices will most likely drop as the game date gets closer and SeatGeek will let you know with with an alert once the price drops into your range. Then you can just open the app, purchase your ticket, head over to MetLife Stadium, show the ticket taker your barcode, and walk in. And don't forget, if it's your first purchase, SeatGeek will send you a $20 rebate for using the promo code LONIX. That's a $20 rebate after you make your first purchase if you use the promo code LONIX. Anyway, uh, also during the Olympics, and this is something that I think you briefly tweeted about during the Olympics as well, uh, Carmelo said that he would be satisfied with his NBA career, basically, um, if it ended with three gold medals and no NBA title. Uh, obviously, there were a lot of people that seized on this as saying that he doesn't care whether he wins an NBA title or not, which is obviously you know a ridiculous notion on its face. Um, I think he was sort of just saying that he's proud of his international career. I mean, is that how it seemed to you as well? I mean, so I, I'll put it this way. I didn't see the exchange. I obviously didn't travel to Rio um, for the games. But I, my hunch, I, I know he did the interview with, with Mark Stein, who's is a good reporter, one of the best we've got. Um, if I had to guess, what I would assume is that Mark Stein probably approached Mello and said, look, you, you guys are likely going to win a medal here. You'll be the first guy to ever do this three times. Um, if this was to happen and you finish your NBA career and don't have any titles, could you still be proud of your career? Uh, my assumption is it was a yes or no question. Um, I don't think Melo went out of his way necessarily to say, I hope, you know, he definitely didn't say, I, I hope not to win any titles in the NBA. But, I mean, it's it's a pretty basic question on one hand. You know, the guy has a, a Hall of Fame, a, a surefire Hall of Fame career regardless. I mean, yeah. at this point, I think he would, I, I want to say be the player with the most all-star appearances in history at this point to not become a Hall of Famer of, of the guys that are eligible to already be in the Hall of Fame. Um, the only guys at this point who have won, have been to more all-star games but not um, been in the Hall of Fame, or, or I'm sorry, they've not been the finals. I think you've got like Steve Nash, and then you've got people that are up there with him like Tracy McGrady and 
and, and people like that. But for the most part, I mean, he's he's pretty much a lock. He also won a college title. He's won more gold medals than anybody at this point. So he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. And I think, you know, he's won a scoring title. Um, he hasn't been to the finals, but he's been to the conference finals before. He's going to be in the Hall of Fame, no doubt. And so, I mean, he, he absolutely should be proud of his career, uh, just like Charles Barkley and just like a number of other people should be proud of their careers. Um, I think it's separate to ask, you know, whether does he truly want to win a title? And I think he does. Um, I, I think the fact that he sent a pretty veiled threat at the front office um, the day that he did exit interviews and said, you know, I have to give real thought to whether I want to exercise my trade clause if, if they're not going to upgrade the roster. I have to kind of wait and see as to whether I kind of ask for a trade. I mean, he's been more and more blunt about saying that. I, 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 he's conflicted about that major point. And the fact that I don't think that he wants to, I mean, he, he even acknowledged part of coming back in free agency uh, two years ago was the fact that he felt like he was part of the reason the Knicks were kind of in the mess that they were in, that they kind of gave up everything they had to get him in a trade, um, and that he didn't want to leave before the job was done, and that he doesn't want to be viewed a villain again the way he was when he left Denver. So I think a lot of stuff matters to him. Legacy matters to him. He said before he even left for the games that, um, to him that part of the reason that he wanted to go was that he saw an opportunity to kind of bolster his legacy a little bit by being the first guy to win three gold medals since LeBron wasn't going to go. So he, he's thinking about these things. Um, there's no doubt in my mind he wants to win a title, but I, I think he's also somewhat of a realist, and he's he's pretty openly saying that may happen where I don't win a title. I might not have that to bolster my resume the way that LeBron does or Dwayne Wade does or Kobe or anybody else, but, you know... Three gold medals is nothing to be ashamed of, neither is an NCAA title, neither is being the third or fourth most devastating scorer of, of his era. Um, you know, those are not the guys that are absolutely most remembered, um, but there's really nothing to be ashamed of. You should not have to apologize to anybody for, for piecing together a Hall of Fame career and still, you know, still having a chance to put your team in contention before his career is over, even if he stays with the Knicks for the remainder of his, his tenure. Yeah, and, and look, I think even if you took out the international career and the college title, you know, it is the Basketball Hall of Fame, not just the NBA Hall of Fame. Yep. I think he'd still have, you know, a, a pretty unassailable Hall of Fame resume in, in terms of what he's done throughout his career. The, the all-star appearances and the scoring titles and just the way he's thought of in the NBA community. I think that media and, and some fans are much lower on him than players and executives and you know he has I think a better reputation within the insular basketball community than he does in the observer community if that makes sense I, I agree with you I mean I think it says a lot and I mean sometimes I think players I, you know I don't know what to make of players opinions all the time because players always want to play with other stars um, and I think that was even true of the Bulls this summer when you look at all the guys they put together, even though they don't really seem to fit. Um, but, you know, the, the fact that Carmelo, um, you know, said that he was... The, the fact that Carmelo has acknowledged talking to different people. Durant, obviously, is an exception because he's one of the three best players in the world. But the fact that, you know, there was all this talk before of whether Carmelo spoke to Kevin Love and Carmelo wanting LaMarcus Aldridge, and that's fine. You know, these guys would not really fit well together because they all kind of have the same skill sets to some extent. And so they always want to play with stars. But when you when you take it further than that, you look at executives that want Carmelo. The fact that 
Boston was rumored to want, the fact that Cleveland has been in that discussion, and you know, I'm sure LeBron would love to play with Carmelo, and, and the fact that a guy like Tom Thibodeau very, very much wanted Carmelo to come to Chicago a couple years ago, and these are guys that, that know basketball and understand, even if Carmelo is mostly just a devastating score, which again, there's nothing to apologize for being that, even if you're not the greatest defender, even if you're not someone that really does a ton in, in between the margins, um, there's still a, a pretty big role to be filled for a lot of teams in having a score like that, um, even as he ages, because I, I think his game is going to age relatively gracefully if he doesn't get hurt. Um, but, I mean, he, he's someone that has a skill that the way he's able to do it in isolation, the, the fact that he's able to do it with a guy in his face, the, the fact that he's done it for so long as a number one guy, and now the way we're talking about him maybe kind of doing this gracefully and, and taking a, a back seat to someone maybe in the next year or two, or if he goes to another team and becomes a second or third player on a, on a competitive team, I mean, he, he would fit that so seamlessly, I think, the same way we've seen him with the Olympics if he plays on the right team. Um, people in the league and around the league recognize how valuable he is, especially now with, you know, a couple of years ago, I think a lot of us have kind of taken an egg on the face in terms of his contract and thinking that his contract would be kind of unwieldy. Now, I mean, his contract, he's, he's being paid less than someone like Harrison Barnes. Right. I mean, his contract is just fine. And um, so he, I, I don't know, I, I think he's definitely a, a very, very good player. I would argue that um, you could argue that he's great. Uh, I think he's been great over the course of his career. I think he's been a franchise-altering player. I had this debate with someone on Twitter a couple of weeks ago um, when I made a comment saying that he's been great, he deserves to have great moments like this with the Olympics, and someone said, what rationale can you really provide to say that he's been great? He's been pretty awful with the Knicks, or the Knicks have been pretty awful with him, and that's just not true. I mean, I, I think, you know, I think he's probably been a good example of someone that, you know, having a, a, a very good or a great player does not always guarantee you success in terms of reaching the playoffs, even in a sport like basketball, but if you want to make that the kind of the benchmark, you could at least say that he was great with Denver and that Denver was very good because of him. And Denver, I think, went eight straight years without as much as making the playoffs before Carmelo was drafted, and then I think went 12 straight years of making the playoffs immediately after drafting Carmelo. That's the sort of thing that I mean when I say he's franchise-altering. And even the Knicks for a while there, you know, I think they made the playoffs for three straight years after picking up Carmelo or in the midst of having Carmelo. Um you know, he hasn't had great teams around him, and he's not a player that changes every aspect of the game. LeBron can do that. Um, you know, I think Durant has grown into a player that can do that. Carmelo doesn't necessarily impact both sides of the floor the way those two do. Um, I think he's grown as a team player, but he's, he's not he's not an all-encompassing player the way that the best, absolute best players in this league are. But I still think you could argue that he's been great, at least for, for periods of time and you know, I just don't think he's always been able to lift the team with him. But two or three of his best seasons have been as a Nick, and I think I think most of us have seen those individual performances shine through. And I think, look, if the worst thing you can say about somebody is that you know he's not as good as LeBron or Kevin Durant, you've had a guy that's had a really, really good career. Like that's there's nothing wrong with not being as good as two of the best players of the last you know fifty years. Like. Yep. I mean, it, <laughs> To me, it, it seems a lot like he's destined to kind of have a career that ends very similarly to someone like um, Dominic Wilkins is the comparison you hear a lot, um, where he's essentially been the second or third best player in his position 
for the majority of his career, but happens to just kind of be stuck between two of the best ever. Um, but, you know, or, or someone like a Mitch Richmond, I think, even where someone who is constantly up at the top of the, you know, um, the scoring titles and, and what have you, um, but never really viewed at, as the best player in his position. And I think that's totally fine if that happens. There's nothing to be ashamed. I've said it three times already, but it, it's nothing to be ashamed of. And that's kind of what I don't understand is like this this element that if you you don't ever win a title that you're a loser, and that, that if you're never the MVP that you you never accomplish anything. I think we've seen before that that, that doesn't really mean much. And I, I think we've seen so many disputed and debated MVPs over time now that I mean it's great to have that in your you know in your trophy room, but it doesn't necessarily determine whether you were the best player or not, not that season. And frankly, I mean, Carmelo's had a couple of years where you could make the argument that he was one of the five best players in the league, and that's hard to do. And so, um, you know, I, it's why I, I don't really get too deep in these arguments, because I think you're going to see and feel whatever you want to see or feel. It's the same way I know you're a Cowboy fan. And this, the Romo argument, I, I think Carmelo is probably up there for people that um, you know, the debates that are had most often in the NBA between Chris Paul and Carmelo and, you know, what their true value is and if they're overrated and it's just easier to kind of abstain from those those debates. Oh, definitely. And, you know, when you bring up the Romo thing, somebody made that comparison a couple of years ago and and then uh, our buddy Andrew Sharp compared the Cowboys to the Knicks and Cowboys fans to Knicks fans and I was like, why are you just describing my entire life right now? <laughs> like... It, it's it's a very similar argument. I'm not going to go much further because pretty much everyone who's listening to this podcast is going to be a Giants or Jets fan and not uh, allow for the fact that Tony Romo was like ever good at football ever, which I'm not going to address. And if you are wondering why, just Google my name and Tony Romo and read the thing I wrote on Grantland for why I will not talk about Tony Romo in public. <laughs> um, uh, and anyway, I, I do want to talk about something that I think is is more serious than. Carmelo's NBA career and the arguments we've actually been having like every year since forever and I don't want to say it's his recent turn towards activism because it's not really all that recent you know he walked um, with protesters in Baltimore after um, after Freddie Gray he he gave a speech with LeBron and Dwayne Wade and Chris Paul at the ESPYs uh, he wrote a lengthy Instagram post giving his thoughts on the subject he wrote an op-ed in The Guardian uh, he led a, a town hall meeting on police violence in Los Angeles. This is something that's obviously, you know, become very important to him over the last few years. And I, I think it's the juxtaposition is interesting because, you know, everybody knows that earlier in his career, um, he appeared in that video with the whole stop snitching thing. And I think that people were sort of taken aback when he became, you know, sort of the guy in the NBA that's that's outspoken um, about violence against, you know, the black community. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's been a, a really big shift for him um, over the course of his career. You know, I, I think um, people make early career mistakes and, and young mistakes sometimes. Um, and I think it, it was really easy if people want again, what, what people want to be able to do or want to be able to say to kind of paint him or anybody else with a really broad brush early on in their career. And, um, you know, you if you want to take him at his word, he really wasn't totally sure what he was being, uh, you know, what, being filmed as part of. 
Um, you know, that was, I think, happened before his rookie year, and it, it came out right before or right during his rookie year, early in his rookie year, um, where he was literally kind of just posted up on the corner while someone was filming um, with a camcorder, essentially. And he, he kind of said he had nothing really deeper to do with that. But, you know, that, that was literally, at this point, I think 14, 13, 14 years ago, uh, people changed. I mean, he came into the league one year after college, and so I guess he was 19 when he came into the league. Um, people changed. People's views changed. I mean, he, to some extent, might have been a product of his community. He grew up in a really rough part of Baltimore, and, you know, despite all the talk of him coming home and him playing for the Knicks and being from Brooklyn, he's very clearly from Baltimore. Um, but I, I also think, you know, when you look at kind of his evolution as a man and um, you know, whether he would consider himself an activist, I don't know if he'd go that far just yet, but, um, you know, growing up in Baltimore allows you to see things that people that age shouldn't have to see and shouldn't have to experience and should have to go through, um, in, in terms of, in my opinion, systemic racism and, um, difference in the way that justice is carried out sometimes and in terms of the level of crime that they see, um, you know, I, I, th- I think it kind of gives you a different perspective in terms of the way government responds to certain issues. And so um, the fact that he marched and, and kind of uh, peacefully protested with people from Baltimore during that Freddie Gray stuff, um, I thought was great. I, you know, I, I thought it was great that he did that. Um, I thought it was really interesting that as he did it, he walked through the city wearing a Muhammad Ali shirt, mm-hmm. which if you... You know, you see him in the locker room and you, you look at some of that tattoo. He's got a ton of tattoos, maybe not as many as JR, but a ton of tattoos. Um, and he's got Muhammad Ali quotes tattooed on his body. And, you know, if you pay attention, you know, and I, I've paid really close attention sometimes, but um, the people that he quotes and the themes that he quotes on Instagram and, and on Twitter sometimes, he's, he's very much um, kind of reveres. Muhammad Ali is probably his uh, the most influential athlete or former athlete in his life. Um, just when you, you talk about his impact on his life and kind of the way he views his worldview, and Malcolm X as a person is really close to that as well. And so people that have um, you know views that do not did not always fit the mainstream when they were you know historical figures in, in this country, and so. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of been interesting to watch Carmelo come out of his shell a little bit, but he's always been interested in general. I, I remember um, tweeting a couple of years ago, um, you know, from a political standpoint, he's always been interested. I remember one day he was getting training work done on his shoulder, and he was kind of looking at his phone or his iPad or whatever it was, and Hillary Clinton was being questioned over the whole Benghazi thing when she was still Secretary of State. Carmelo... Um, just started to kind of smile and laugh. He's like, oh, stuff getting heated now. But he was watching the replay of that. And so, I mean, Carmelo, it, it, it's crazy, you know, and I know you and me have probably had this frustration and vented about this on Twitter. Um, so many fans want the writers and the athletes and everyone yep. else to just kind of fit in this nice, clean, cute box. And the truth is a lot of us have interests outside of that. I mean, I studied politics all throughout college. I covered politics, I covered law, I covered crime. It's really hard for me to just sit back and not ever have an opinion or a feeling about the stuff that we're watching on go on in this country right now that frankly kind of touches on every one of those things I just talked about. Crime, law, politics, um, you know, the election obviously is going to touch on a lot of those things too, uh, since a lot of those are topics within the election. So I mean, Carmelo 
to have an interest in those things. You know, maybe not to voice who he's endorsing the same way that I don't make I make a point to not endorse you know who I plan to vote for or if I voted for anyone. Um, but I, I do think players should have that right, and I think Carmelo. I think it's really refreshing that he's done that. You know, could he go further or can he say more? Maybe, but it, you know, at the same time, he's just kind of finding a sweet spot in terms of what he's comfortable speaking on and what he's comfortable doing and saying. And it's very clear that he's kind of taken a lead role with that. And I think it's great. I mean, I think he was kind of the impetus for what was said at the ESPYs. And, you know, and I, I think he's making a point to not try to say anything too controversial. It's fairly different than what we've seen with Colin Kaepernick. Um, you know, I think Carmelo's taken a pretty neutral stance just saying we need to work on this. Whereas Kaepernick is saying the system's just completely messed up. And, you know, and I'm not going to take part in the anthem until you know until I see fixes with that Carmelo's not going that far but I think it's great that Carmelo's even trying to draw attention to anything because you know a lot of people around sports and especially people as influential as he is and as famous as he is are not doing that or have not done that yeah I I think there's definitely uh, a few different things to respond to there you know first obviously so many fans want their their favorite athletes or their writers that cover their favorite athletes to fit into that neat little box, like you said. And, and anybody that speaks up about anything, you know, runs, I, I guess you could call it the risk of offending somebody. You know, that's why Michael Jordan famously said, like, Republicans buy shoes too. You know, and, and anybody who comes down on the different side of an issue that a, an, of an, a stance that an athlete takes or a stance that a writer takes... You know, you, you risk losing, you know, a, a fan or a reader or an endorsement, and that's something Carmelo addressed, you know, in his op-ed as well. Like, you know, maybe don't worry about losing endorsements and stuff like that if you feel strongly enough uh, about a certain issue, um, and th- and that's why the difference between the reaction to what Carmelo has said and done and the reaction to what Colin Kaepernick said and did, and, and even the difference in the reaction between. What Carmelo said, which was much more of a stance than anything Gabby Douglas did during the Olympics, like she didn't take a stance at all. Like she just didn't put her hand over her heart while the while the, the national anthem was being sung, and like you could find a picture of literally any other athlete doing the exact same thing before almost any game or other event, and the invective spewed at her was so crazy, and and the same thing with Kaepernick, like. I mean, is the difference just because they did it at games and people have, like, this this thing where they equate games and, and Olympics to, like, war almost? Like, I, I don't understand the difference between the reactions. Like, it's so uh, stark. It's so crazy. I'm going to go here. And, uh, you know, I, I normally do not say stuff that's controversial um, on Twitter or in podcasts. I mean... My hunch with a lot of that stuff would be it happened because they're black. I mean, yeah, but so is Carmelo. People, well, well, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it's different. Carmelo, again, I don't think Carmelo took as extreme a stance as um, as Kaepernick did. Right. And, and and also, yeah, I do think there's a lot that people tie up. I mean, the same thing that you saw with, um, you know, the criticism during the Democratic convention was that uh, there were no flags in sight. Right. Um, you know, on their stage when they started their convention, whereas with the Republican convention you obviously saw a lot of flags and so people question the patriotism and so i mean i I tweeted about that that was one of the things i did kind of go on more of a rant about probably the latest thing that i went on a rant about on twitter 
at all over the last month was the fact that Gabby Douglas was getting so much unfair criticism and kind of crazy criticism for, in my opinion, no reason. Uh, I mean, I don't know that you have to be patriotic to go to the Olympics in the first place, but I mean, this is someone that has made our country proud now for the better part of four or five years. And so and it look, it's a young black woman that should be a hero like forever. Like, right. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think people realize, and, and I don't expect everyone to pay attention to this, but when you, when you have a black Olympian who thrives in a sport that really black people have not made a huge mark in before. I mean, I think we saw it with uh, Simone Manuel this year. Yep. Um, that, I mean, that's a huge sort of thing. I mean, Gabby Douglas essentially did exactly that four years ago. She's not even old enough to drink. And I mean, so she's accomplished more than basically anybody will in life, uh, at least from an athletic standpoint. She did that at age 16. She was kind of the pride and joy of the country four years ago. And now I, I just kind of people feel like people are inventing things to really get on her about this time around. And I, and I acknowledge that a lot of it is on Twitter, that it was probably more mixed than what people are giving it credit for. I don't think everybody was reacting crazily to all that. But when, I, when you talk specifically about um, showing respect or regard for the flag or for the anthem, I, I have to be honest in saying that it's really hard to find those criticisms of white athletes even when they do the same thing. When, you know, maybe they're smiling, Gabby Douglas wasn't smiling um, during the anthem, but I mean, you have examples of Michael Phelps laughing during the anthem, and then he explains why, and then people are like, oh, okay, cool. Or you have examples of guys not having their hand over their heart after they win gold medals, and people don't see it. You have examples, people were pulling up pictures of Donald Trump, um, you know, at Republican debates where every other candidate has their hand over their heart and Donald Trump does not as they're saluting the flag or as they're, they're playing the anthem or what have you. I mean, it, it happens all the time. And, and I, I genuinely became curious as to, like, since when have we placed this sort of value on whether it's having your hand over your heart or singing the anthem? Or, in, in my opinion, the other thing that's become a huge deal that kind of annoys me over the last few years, or at least since I've been old enough to really pay attention to politics, is that, and I think it became mostly an issue during Obama's first election, was the flag pit. Thing. Yes, and and that was something that again was kind of uh, targeting Obama at the time, and you know, and you had people questioning why he wasn't wearing a flag pin. And this, keep in mind, this is also within the context of the whole: is he actually American? Was he actually born here? Where was he born? The birther controversy, which you know, on some level was kind of started, or at least furthered by someone like Donald Trump. But I was curious, genuinely curious as to when and where that that whole thing started. You know, is this something that has only been an issue for like the last 10 years? You know, obviously George Bush um, kind of um, brought that back in terms of, you know, every, after everything happened with 9-11, and that's totally fine. I have no issue with people wearing flag pins. I just think it becomes weird when we start demonizing people for not having their hand over their heart or for not wearing a flag pin as if that's more important than the issues that of the day, you know, especially exactly. when we're talking about an athlete. And so I looked back at it. I mean, I, I think I was able to find when I Googled it, maybe one example of someone who was kind of questioned um, over the idea of not wearing a flag pin when that person was white. Um, and the, the person that I found was actually Tim Kaine. And it was huh. someone, someone who questioned, like he was wearing a pin and they said that it was representing like some sort, I can't remember what exactly it was, but I, I think he has 
is it Honduras that he has ties to or something? I'm not he, sure. Something that he has, like, I think he did mission mission work in, in Honduras or something. So he's wearing, like, a Honduras pen um, a couple of years ago, and someone called him out and said, you're not wearing an American flag pen, and as a matter of fact, what you're wearing is, like, offensive. And he's like, actually, I just did mission work there, and I always wear this flag pen. And so someone tried to call him out, and then they um, – it actually was like pretty recent, I think, that someone called him out for it. But it was like from a previous picture or something. I don't remember. But either way, it was like the only time I'd even seen someone call out someone who was white. So my, my only point with this, I, I'm not trying to necessarily make this a totally black and white issue in terms of race. But I, I think people kind of use it often as a way to try to claim that someone is less American or that they care less about America than they do. And first of all, I don't think that's something you can measure. Just like with athletes, a lot of times you can't measure heart, you can't measure, like, those are kind of intangibles. And even if someone does love or care about America less, I mean, I don't know that that makes them less of a citizen. People have different experiences. Yes, like our country has given some of these high-profile athletes huge platforms, but if they play in another country, they might still have a huge platform the same way a lot of these people do, Itro and other people and Yao Ming. I mean, they had pretty enormous profiles in their own countries and around the world before they ever came over here. I don't think we need to have this constant competition of who loves the country most because I don't think it, it at the end, it really doesn't kind of help solve the problems. I don't think... Right. That's the biggest thing is it distracts from talking about the actual issues that people are bringing up. You know, with Kaepernick, people are only talking about his decision not to stand for the national anthem and whether or not he's right to do so and not about the actual substance of why he's not doing it. And all you need to do is look at his Twitter mentions or Gabby Douglas's Twitter mentions during the Olympics. And I mean, so much of what's being said to them is race-based. And it's... It's it's, it's, it's everything that they're saying. In the right. Movie, but I mean, not, not to where... I mean... Being racist to someone online does not equate to police brutality, but, I mean, the fact that, like, someone says black people are being mistreated in this country, and then someone calls you the N-word as a result of bringing that up, and... Right, or, like, get out of the country, like... Yeah, (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's shameful, and, um... You know, I don't know how how else to put it, but, again, I, I do not mean the way, you know totally deeply into these issues of race, but I mean, that that matters to me. I'm a a black reporter, Um, you know, I have my own views on this, and if they differ from other people's, that's fine, but I mean, I I think it's shameful that we live in a country where, you know, someone says that, and number one, even though everything kind of shows that it's true, um, in terms of the statistics of dealing with, you know, incarceration rates, in terms of... um, you know, maybe not more black people killed in, in police uh, run-ins, but definitely a much higher percentage and right. likelihood of that happening, given that, you know, 13 or 14% of this country is black versus 55 or 60% white or whatever it is. I mean, it, sh- it should go without saying that some of these things, it's pretty easy to check on and, and see how much truth there is to it. And, um, you know, it, it, you should be able to say those things without having to devolve into a conversation about black-on-black crime or a conversation about whether Colin Kaepernick has it better because he makes money or whether he has it better because he grew up with a white family. Right. I mean, it is totally distracting the issue that he brought up, which is totally valid as to why he feels like he, he doesn't want to stand because he doesn't feel like it truly... Or the fact that, I mean, let's be really honest, the anthem was written at a time where, um, you know, frankly... The anthem was 
was not meant to encompass everyone when it was first written, and that there used to be more to the anthem than there is now in terms of lyrics and everything else. I, I don't know. It, it, there's way more to it than what people want to reduce it down to, which is the fact that Colin Kaepernick is rich, Colin Kaepernick is trying to get attention, Colin Kaepernick isn't even good anymore, Colin Kaepernick doesn't deserve a voice. It is totally ridiculous when you think about the fact that Ali was just praised and, you know, after his death for doing a lot of the same stuff and saying a lot of the same things and drawing attention to a lot of the same things. And the fact that people want to praise him in his death. And then now when someone kind of has a modern day version of that to try to silence him or to say that he's not being respectful, that's ridiculous to me. And, and also the fact that a lot, you, you see people even creating hashtags in support of Colin Kaepernick veterans right. creating hashtags in support of him. When basically the reason that people go over there is is to fight for the right to be able to do what Colin Kaepernick was doing. So I, I just kind of am at a loss for... I mean, if you disagree with him, that's totally fine. But I, I, I was pretty ashamed of what Jim Harbaugh said. You know, I'm a huge Michigan fan. I went to Michigan. I was ashamed of what he said before he came out and apologized for saying it, saying that he doesn't respect Colin Kaepernick's motivations for doing this or his motives for doing this. It's like he very clearly explained what his motives were. And even if you don't totally understand them to say that you don't respect them, um, and I think there's a reason that he apologized literally within an hour or two of having said that, because, um, I mean, that's a pretty bold statement to make oh, yeah. to the school, like the University of Michigan, which is a pretty um, inviting liberal place, you know, 40 minutes away from the city of Detroit, probably one of the most black cities in America, when you're coaching a bunch of black athletes. Right, I mean, he's an old white guy coaching people. a bunch of young black men, who are the people yep. that are largely in danger. Yep, so I, I you know... Regardless of whether you agree with Kaepernick or not, it's kind of hard to say that I don't think he's speaking just for himself. I think he's speaking for a larger subset of people who it's, it's pretty hard to deny have had issues with treatment in this country. And, and literally, you know, even organizations or, you know, places that are supposed to be totally neutral and how they go about their job, the FBI, you know, the, um, you, you look at the um, attorney general and people like that. These are people that have come down in recent weeks and said that you've got major cities and major areas that have systemically discriminated <laughs> against people of color. I mean, I don't really know what there is to debate with that. I mean, if you don't like the fact that it's being brought up or you don't agree with the idea of race being injected and everything, fine. But it's a part of it, it's not a part of everyday life for everyone. It is for people of color in certain cities and in certain places. So the fact that he would say that, speak for that group of people that feel affected and feel discriminated against I mean more power to him if that's the way he chooses to exercise it at least people took notice of it you know agree or disagree at least people took notice and maybe that was the point I, I definitely agree and one thing that's uh, was very obvious I think about the way this conversation around what Kaepernick did ha has gone was that rather than addressing the conversation the conversation has been changed and that's sort of a standard mode of argument for a certain subset of people when issues are brought up that they happen to fall on the other side of. Like, just as, as another example, you know, when the conversation of gay marriage is brought up, then it's like, oh, what's next? Will I be allowed to marry my dog? Like, it, it's, it's just, it's changing the conversation rather than addressing the substance of the conversation. And, and it's something that annoys me to no end as someone who is a trained arguer because I went to law school and, right. and, and anything that addresses something that's not on the topic is it, always, it just irks me. 
But, you know, to, to bring it back to Carmelo, I think something that sort of motivates his, and this is obviously just looking at it from afar, but I think it's something that you can sort of impute, is that, you know, he is um, now a grown black man, obviously, who used to be a black child and then a black teenager. And it's it's hard to ignore the fact that, that he and LeBron and Wade and Chris Paul are all fathers of black children who within a few years will be black teenagers and are will then be directly in the demographic of people that are largely the ones that are put in danger whether it's you know police brutality or or racist comments or whatever it is you know that's that's the demographic that 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 it's that is hit in the country right now i'm curious if that's something you've thought about as well or is that just me sort of from afar no, I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's tougher for me because I haven't, you know, I'm not a point where I have children yet, um, but, I mean, yeah, I don't, again, and this is what I guess I don't understand when I see people criticizing um, Colin Kaepernick's right to speak because, you know, he's somehow um, not qualified to speak here because he's, he has 31 million or whatever, 61 million, whatever, and traveling. As if he doesn't have to deal with all sorts of um, people wondering, you know, people that don't know who he is. I don't know, even if you did know who he was, I don't know that that would stop you from pulling him over. Um, right. You know, the fact that I write for the Wall Street Journal or anywhere else, or the fact that I was destined to do that didn't stop me from getting pulled over every damn time I drove to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, you know, I got to a point where I initially, not initially, eventually stopped driving from Chicago to Ann Arbor during the day because I got stopped every single time I went back to school. What? I would only drive back at night so that, you know, it would help my chances of being able to drive without being seen and being profiled. And so, I mean, and, and a lot of black men, I mean, my dad used to tell me this stuff about him as a kid, that he constantly would get stopped and constantly say that he fit the profile of someone that they were looking for. And I remember, I, I just used to think that my dad just injected race into everything. And I, and I didn't see that until I started to see that for myself and see that in my own experiences. Even though I've never been charged with anything, I've never, you know, I've never gotten, I think I have one moving violation um, for not wearing a seatbelt once, but I mean, I've, I've never been in trouble for anything. And, you know, same with my dad and same with a lot of these people. And Colin Kaepernick, I mean, who was it? Rodney Harrison the other day that said he's yeah. not even black? I mean, even if, so I, first of all, I didn't even know what the hell that meant, but beyond that, if he wasn't black, if you looked at Colin Kaepernick and didn't know what race he was, I mean, I'm not really sure the assumption that you would make about what race he is really helps him there either. If you think he's Middle Eastern somehow, I mean, that's probably worse than being black in this country in terms of the way you're profiled, in terms of people getting on a plane with you and not wanting to sit next to you. And well, How many stories a week do we see like that where people refuse to sit down or call their flight attendant because they see someone um, – mention the, the phrase Allah or the word Allah in a text message and or, then don't like, want to write even, Also, even if he's not black, like, wouldn't that be, like, a great thing to have, you know, a non-black person standing up for the rights of black people and saying, like, this is something that really bothers me and I'm not gonna, you know, acknowledge our flag until the rights of these people who don't include me are fully as fully acknowledged as mine? Like, wouldn't that be, like, exactly what we're looking for in America? I, I mean, I'll put it this way. <laughs> you, don't, you don't see many black people telling people to sit down when someone fights for rights on their behalf. So, I don't know. I mean, but, my, but that's my, that goes back to my whole thing. I, again, I, I don't think anybody 
should be pointing at Colin Kaepernick's checkbook when when they want. If you want to criticize something about him, that's fine. I, I, again, I, we're probably on different pages of this argument. If that's what you want to do or what you're looking to do, as if he doesn't have a valid critique here, a valid criticism. Um, if you think he's dishonoring veterans, fine. Uh, a lot of veterans would disagree with you. A lot of people would disagree with you. You know, that's one of the things I have an issue with. I don't think veterans. I don't think black people. These are these groups are not monoliths. You know, they're, yes. they're not. You know, one person does not speak for everyone. Obviously, Colin Kaepernick does not speak for the whole NFL. People that have coached Colin Kaepernick have said that they were essentially offended by what he did. So. It's not fair to assume that they all feel the same way. It's not fair to assume that veterans feel the same way. But a lot of people that serve feel their duty when they go over to serve for us is to protect our rights. Even if they disagree with their rights that someone else is taking, it doesn't mean that, that somehow you, you diminish Colin Kaepernick as a human or call him out of his name or burn his jersey. By the way, I, I don't remember too many other white athletes having their, their jerseys burned. They're going to have to go back to that. But Colin Kaepernick is a black man in this country. He's at some point may have children. And again, people, if they have to deal with discrimination or have to teach their kids how to deal with discrimination, no offense, but as a white person, you don't necessarily get to tell them how they should be going about dealing with discrimination or how they should go about speaking out against it because that's something that they have to deal with and that no, no amount of money, I mean, as Dwayne Wade just saw, I mean, his cousin and all sorts of other stuff, no amount of money really insulates you entirely from having to deal with violence or the repercussions of violence at some point in your life. And that's kind of just the the bottom line of it. And so until that's the case, until money can protect you from everything, money should not be a reason that you're not allowed to speak out about something that impacts you in your daily life. Yeah, and look, that's something that, um, somebody asked, I think it was Buck Showalter, the manager of uh, the Orioles, about Kaepernick's uh, stance. And, and one of the things he said was, like, I've never been black in this country. Like, I can't speak to what his experiences have been like. And, and he said the same thing through the reporter. Like, neither have you. So don't judge what he's been going through or what he says he's gone through. And you I, know, don't, I don't think he said that. I, I could be totally wrong. He might have said something separate. I don't think he was addressing Kaepernick. I think oh. this was last summer in the wake of Freddie Gray. Oh. With everything happening in Baltimore. That I just saw the video the other day. I remember they had the game. They had a game actually against my hometown team, against the White Sox, that they ended up playing in front of an empty stadium because there were too many concerns about safety oh. on the outside because uh, Camden Yards is, is right there in the midst of Baltimore. And so okay. I just I saw the video yesterday. Game. But, I, but people brought that up in response to it because there are so many people that aren't either aren't trying to put themselves in the shoes of people of color or aren't able to do it. And so Buck Walter was asked about kind of the frustration at having to play an empty a, a game in front of an empty ballpark um, because of everything that was happening in Baltimore. And he basically said, look, you're not black. I'm not black. I can't speak to what it's like to be black. So the best thing you can kind of do is to just try to understand it and try to let them like work out their issues, like however that manifests. If they protest and they burn stuff down, maybe there's a reason for it. And that was essentially what he said. I mean, and honestly, as a black man, hearing someone basically say, I don't know enough to comment on this because I'm not black. I, I can't imagine what it's like to be black in this country. I know I appreciated him saying that. It doesn't mean that he's not allowed to have an opinion, but for him to say that my opinion might not be as informed as that of a black person because I'm not black, I mean, it's really base level stuff, but it's like, 
you know, it, it was a really candid response, and I, I kind of wish more people could take that approach and just instead of being so not understanding about it that they just kind of lash out, and whether they call names or you know call people thugs in, in, in response to all the stuff happening. I mean, like you, when you're pushed and you're kind of pushed into a corner, and you know when when you look at joblessness in Baltimore and you look at lack of police response or, or lack of justice in cases where police, you know, end up fatally shooting people or, or in Freddie Gray's case, I mean, it was literally ruled a homicide. And then you watch the people that were involved in the case. Um, you know, no one actually ends up uh, being convicted of anything. And in some cases, the charges were just dropped with the other officers, even though he was in a police van in police custody and then came out and was dead. And so, I mean, I, I totally understand where some people are coming from, where they just kind of feel like they've been pushed too far. If you can't understand how people feel, that's fine. But I, I don't know that it needs to be a complete us-against-them thing all the time. Because I don't think it's just white people versus black people. I think it's kind of the system needs total hand-washing and fixing at this point. And, um, you know, there are certain people that have never seen the system work for them, ever. And... I, I can't even relate with that, but like, if you had to relate with that, how would you feel? And so that, right. and I think that's kind of what Carmelo is saying. It, it doesn't mean that no one ever makes it out, but when you're the only person that makes it out, it, some people view you as having more of a responsibility to actually try to get attention to the people that don't. And so that's kind of why I respect what Carmelo's doing and why, on some level, I respect what Colin Kaepernick is doing because these are people that actually have enough of a platform to get noticed when they say something. Um, whether you agree with it or not. Not everyone's always going to agree, but to minimize these guys to just athletes and to say that they shouldn't have more of a say because they make big paychecks, um, I think is totally missing the point and also, again, a distraction from what they're trying to say and the, the larger point they're trying to make. I, I saw one person, it was probably the dumbest tweet I've seen since I've been on Twitter, um, basically say, you know, newsflash for black people, in case you didn't notice, like, you already have a president and the highest paid athlete in the world. Yeah. And someone tweeted back, like Newsflash, there are more than two black people in this country. Yes, I did you know, see if, that. If it works for two people or for 445 people, then the number of NBA players we have, great. But there's, you know, those are not the typical black person in this country. And even if it's working for them, there, there's a whole group of people that it's not working for, much larger than 445 or one or two or however many other millionaires we have in this country that are black a lot of people and, and money does not you know money doesn't really protect you from being called the n-word or anything else you know as we've seen with obama and anyway i don't know i could go on and on about this you know i have interest way deeper than basketball and so when these things intersect with basketball and with other stuff you know you could get me talking for hours but hopefully at least my point got across there yeah no it, it definitely did and one thing uh, i do want to mention before i let you go is that that i found you know, not not just interesting, but smart about what Carmelo said in his op-ed was basically where he's like, I don't have the answer. Like, so I'll, I'll just directly read the quote. And it was just, you know, so what next? I don't have the answer. Nobody does. But what we can do is start bringing a conscious awareness to and keep this conversation going. We can't keep riding on this merry-go-round where tragedy happens. It's all over TV and social media. Everybody talks about it. Then in three or four days, it's over with. 
basically just saying like we need to talk about this stuff, not just let it go. Like I see people already saying like, let's just end this Kaepernick conversation already, get it over with. Like, no, we need to talk about the substance of what he's saying and the substance of what Carmelo is saying and, and other athletes and other activists and people are saying. And, and that's all Carmelo was basically asking for. And I think that's somewhat differentiated him from Kaepernick as well, who took you know more of a, a firm stance on one side. Carmelo is basically just like, we all need to talk to each other. And, and that's... You know, to to come out and, and say that rather than like cops are bad or white people are bad, I think that's sort of why the reaction to him was tamer than it was to Kaepernick. Yeah, I mean, I I'll put it this way: I don't. To your first point, um, I don't know that it's the athlete's responsibility to have a next step in mind. Right. Um, they don't do this for a living. They're not activists for a living. Um, Sometimes that kind of gets tacked on to you know what they view themselves as responsible for when we look at someone like Muhammad Ali and, and some other athletes too over over the course of history when they've kind of been part of a bigger moment that, that kind of created a firestorm like this. But um, you know I think it's good that they even bring it up in a conversation where again you and me have firsthand knowledge of this. A lot of people don't want to bring up politics or don't want to bring up sports and they see them as totally separate. Every time I mention anything related to either one, um, you know, social activism or politics or anything, very quickly someone reminds me, you cover the Knicks. I follow you because of the Knicks. Yep. about that. As if you're not a person, you're just something created to give them information that they're looking for. Right. So, I mean, the truth is, uh, I'm sure athletes are no doubt given that same response from a lot of people. And, you know, it's as if people, maybe people view it sports as an escape. And so they're annoyed when they actually have to deal with anything that's kind of not that escape that they're looking for. But the, the thing is, you know, it's not fair to, to put an athlete in a position. Or, in my case, as a writer, we, you know, people get to have breaks from a lot of the stuff that they deal with every day. People of color don't get a break from being of color. You know, maybe, maybe for the three hours that they're on the court and everybody else is essentially black, too. And you can just be a fan of that person. But, again, I, I don't know that there's, like, some salvation from being of color when it comes to dealing with police and dealing with, you know, sorts of issues that a lot of people encounter every day. And if there is, maybe for millionaires, but not for the average person. So, I, you know, I, I guess I would kind of caution people with that, that um, there's that part of it. But also, you know, I don't know that it's totally fair to ask someone that uses their platform to say, look, we need to focus on this more and really talk this out because it is a real issue and we're losing people from the community every day um, over these sorts of issues and, you know, that are just now kind of becoming more mainstream because we're seeing more video footage of it, people recording this stuff on their cell phones. Um, you know, these are athletes. And so on the one hand, like, yeah, people are offended by them because they're athletes and because these are people they just want to watch play. But on the other hand... I don't know that we should expect them. Like, it's great that they're bringing it to the fore in the first place, and hopefully there is a next step. But I don't know that they, it needs to be the same person that kind of gets the ball rolling to be the person that has the second, third, fourth step. I mean, they're not politicians, and that's why people are reacting to them the way they are, because they're not politicians, and they're not really expected to know how to navigate this. And the same way that with Kaepernick and what shirt he wears or how he articulates certain things... I mean, I don't necessarily know that he's supposed to be the perfect messenger, but that again, I don't know that that should matter. What he's saying should matter more than how he goes about saying it or 
what role he has, first string, second string, what team he's on, what kind of money he makes, and I just kind of feel like all these things. And in terms of like what they follow up with and what they say afterwards, I don't know that they should have to say a lot afterwards. I mean, they started the conversation, and that's important on its on its own. So we'll we'll see what comes of it. But um, but I'm I'm incredibly curious to see where it goes and how long the Kaepernick situation kind of plays out and and is a national story because I think it's great that it is one. Um, I, I think it's great to kind of see the different perspectives on it as long as they're done respectfully. But um, you know, I, I think it's great that this stuff is being put more at the forefront of our consciousness and, and our, our awareness for the time being. Yeah, and look, I think that's a great place to end because the thing you said last there, which you know we should be focusing on the issue and not everything surrounding it. I think that's bit like the perfect way to sum up everything that's been you know quote unquote wrong with the discourse uh, around these issues is that there's too much focus on everything else rather than the substance of, of why people are making these arguments. Um, so I'm gonna let you go. Do you have anything? Uh, before I do, that you want to uh, promote anything coming up? I know you're going on a, a little break here, but uh, other than that, is there anything you want people to look out for? Nope, not at the moment. I mean, at this point, I'm probably just kind of holding back until training camp starts and saving all my best stuff for then. I've got one piece I'm hoping that'll come together, hopefully for the first or second week of camp and preseason. That should be really, really fun and different, but um, but not not for a while, but not until probably the end of September or beginning of October. All right, man. Sounds good. Everybody be on the lookout for that. Um, you can find Chris's work at the Wall Street Journal. You can uh, follow him on Twitter at HerringWSJ, and he has his own archive on the Wall Street Journal now, so I don't have to use the fake one that I made up by searching the site, which, which is now the second time I think I've mentioned that uh, on, the, on this podcast. Um, quickly, before we go here, I want to remind you guys that the Locked on Knicks podcast today is brought to you by SeatGeek. Download the SeatGeek mobile app for the easiest way to buy tickets to concerts or sporting events. Use the promo code LONIX to get a $20 rebate on your first SeatGeek purchase. That's LONIX for a $20 rebate on your first SeatGeek purchase. If you would like to get in touch with me or the show, feel free to reach out at LockedOnNicks on Twitter, at JADubin5 on Twitter, LockedOnNicks at gmail.com, or to my personal email address, which you can find in the bio of at JADubin5. Dubin 5. You can find the show on Audio Boom. You can find it on Stitcher. And we would really appreciate it if you subscribed uh, and left us a review on iTunes as well. I will be back next week with some more shows. Chris, thank you so much for coming on, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on and keep up the good work with the podcast. You're doing great. Thanks, man. You too.